Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We'll continue our reading to verse 10. This is God's Word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall lead straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, now having heard your word in the presence of your people, we now submit ourselves to it. And we ask that you would make this word live within our own hearts and our souls by the power of the Spirit now. Now meeting us graciously, extending to us gospel comforts. But from those comforts challenging us to walk as disciples, men and women, boys and girls followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the generation in which you have placed us. Father, would you open up our ears, unstop our ears. Let us wonder at the glory of the things that are told to us from Isaiah 11 and let our hearts rejoice as we see and fear the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer and savior of our souls. Would you hear this prayer and answer it? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can tell from the, the bulletin this morning, we uh, had a wonderful baptism in the previous service. I'm sorry you missed it. Um, little Easton Crawford um, did marvelously. At one point, he took my tie into his mouth and chewed on it. Apparently, it's a delicacy. I don't know. He thoroughly enjoyed it. 
you know, I just was reminded just as we were going through the beauty of that moment of applying the sign and the seal of God's promises of salvation to Easton in no way saying that this young man knows the Lord or this moment of baptism in some way converts him or changes him. Uh, we are in the mysteries of God around the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and, the, and baptism. Only the Lord portions out his grace as he determines through those means of grace. But what we do know he's saying to Easton is what he said to all of us who've been born in Christian families, who've received the sign and the seal of baptism, is that he's extending to us the loving promises of his grace and crying out to us of that grace long before we cry out to him. What, if, what the faithfulness of the Lord has spoken to us when he placed little Easton in the Crawford family, that that child will be under the means of grace, the preaching of the word, and will walk with this covenant family, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, for the years to come. What an incredible grace that is. And we acknowledge and recognize that God is kind in his placement of children within the life and the family of the church. Uh, that's a wonderful gift. And I was rehearsing that gift once, maybe 12, 13 years ago. I don't remember previous church that I was serving with an older saint who I was querying about uh, his own conversion story, his own coming to know the Lord, his, his uh, moment from being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, multiple kinds of language, biblical language we could give to describe that change. And what was his testimony was that over the course of his life, many times he's come to the sense of the recognition of his sin. Many times he's come to Christ in grace for forgiveness. And many times has he renewed himself in obedience to the commands of Christ. And he was rehearsing what Luther called the Christian life is the life of repentance. A life that's constantly coming to the Lord. And deepening our awareness and acknowledgement of our need for him. And then being washed again, so to speak, by the gracious word of the gospel. And being renewed as followers of him. And what was marvelous about that was he said, you know what I see that as is not so much a moment in time. Though I know there was a pivotal place. He couldn't identify it in his own life. He said, it's the answer to the sign of my baptism long before I knew the Lord. And that's what I've seen represented in my life. What a special thing that is. What a small thing that is, if you think about it, from an earthly standpoint. It's the application of water to a head around someone saying a few words. That's how the 21st century would describe the thing. You know, we strip things down to its bare bones. It's very analytical and stark scientific acknowledgments. And by doing so, we dissect the frog and we kill it simultaneously. These are the stuff that it is, and yet we miss the meaning of what is presented. The truth of the spiritual reality that's underneath the application of the water and the proclamation of those words. And that is God has promised to extend as a means of grace to his people through the sign and the seal of baptism. The, the Puritans like to say, let us grow up into our baptism. Meaning to say, let what baptism symbolizes become true of us. That the Lord, by his grace, would grow us into that sign. That we would become those people who have truly clung to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, which is the only way we can be saved. 
And let that righteousness be ours in him. I know that because it's often the small things of our lives where the Lord brings about the largest turning points. It's often actually not the big things of our lives, but it's the small things. As I look back on my own life and I think of little conversations and little turns in providence and uh, little books that I've read and people that I've met, it's been the small things that have made all of the difference. In this passage from Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet is saying to us, don't despise the day of small things, for he is up to something very big in the small. I want to look at this passage with you in three different ways. I want you to see in Isaiah chapter 11 first, the king's inconspicuous arrival. The king's inconspicuous arrival. And then I want you to see after we look at the king's inconspicuous arrival that you see the king's ironic reign. The king's ironic reign. And then I want you to see finally in our time together uh, the king's unavoidable return. The king's unavoidable return. Now when I say inconspicuous arrival, some of you are you know, doing the dictionary thing in your mind right now, and you're going, what does that mean? What, what does that, I, I, I've heard of people who are inconspicuous, but I'm not really sure. It's not a word that rolls off my tongue easily or often. What does it mean when we say the king's inconspicuous arrival? Well, if you ever hear someone use that word, like kind of like now, and, and they refer to someone as inconspicuous, they mean someone who's out of the limelight, who's in the background, blending into the woodwork, hardly noticeable. That's what inconspicuous means. The king's inconspicuous arrival. I want you to just note the imagery here. The imagery starts in verse 1 of Isaiah 11 with this shoot that's rising up from Jesse. And he says it's rising up from Jesse's stump. Now, if you're, if you're Wondering, kind of, where does that image come from? He's pulling it from chapter 10. Um, chapter 10 is a, is a judgment text wherein the Lord God takes up an axe and he lays it uh, against the people of Israel and he fells, as it were, the people of Israel. The people of Israel are pictured as a large forest. And he has taken up the axe and he has felled that forest and he's used the people of Assyria to do that. They're the axe. But then God picks up his axe and he actually fails Assyria. Assyria itself, which was an enemy of the people of God, was used as an instrument of discipline towards its people. But then God turns back around and says, well, Assyria deserves judgment as well. And he lays his own axe at the base of the Assyrian forest, so to speak. And by the end of chapter 10, all we have are stumps. If you were to read the last few verses of chapter 10, you'll see that God's lopping off the bows and branches and he's, he's cutting down the trees. Not even the great cedars of Lebanon are maintained. Everything is gone. It, it, yesterday, seeing the, the horrific images of Mayfield, Kentucky, like so many of you, in the ravages of the tornadoes that tore through Tennessee and Kentucky on Friday evening, I think to myself, this is the end of Isaiah 10. Like total devastation, nothing standing, a sense of hopelessness. And then the opening of chapter 11 is, there's a shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse. There's a shoot. There's new life. 
There's, there's new beginning. Now, to, to be quite honest, I, I think to myself, I know that's intended to be encouraging to the people of Israel, but at the point in which they're actually receiving this word initially, it's like, it's, you know, it's like seeing like a field of stumps and like one little sign of life. And, and, and Isaiah's going, look at that. Don't notice all the stumps. <laughs> Good luck with that. I would be consumed with the stumps. I'd be consumed with what I lost, not what little twig is growing here out of a stump. In fact, I would be saying to myself, well, maybe my great-great-grandchildren will appreciate it. But as far as my life goes, it's full of stumps. And yet the Lord is saying to the people of Israel, don't despise the day of small things. Out of the ash heap that is your life, I am doing a brand new work of life. You see that little shoot rising out of Jesse, that Jesse's father, David's son, who is David's father, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, King David, this great royal lineage now has someone coming out of it. In fact, if you'll notice the language, this shoot of the stump of Jesse is referred to as a hymn in verse 2. This is a person, and this person is coming forth from a royal line. This is a new king. Fast forward several hundred years, what Isaiah is speaking to us of is a little baby that's born in a manger. A little shoot. A shoot is imperceptible. It's small. It seems insignificant. Much like that babe in the manger. In that no-name place outside of Bethlehem to no-name parents, carpenter, son. In the little outhouse of an end in the place called Bethlehem. The greatest moment in redemptive history was taking place. Don't despise the day of small things, is what Isaiah is telling us. The inconspicuous arrival of this king is not to be missed. Now this just shows us just how different the wisdom of the Lord is, isn't it? I mean, there's no parade. There's, the kings of the earth don't know about it. Who comes and visits? Shepherds. The riffraff of the ancient Near Eastern world. People with no standing coming to a poor baby. Such is the wisdom of the world. They reject Christ and yet such is the wisdom of God. Therein in that little stable was the center of the universe spiritually speaking. Don't despise the day of small things. It's often the small things and the simple fidelities where the Lord is accomplishing so much in our lives. We are to take in this seemingly insignificant shoot and to realize that it's grown to where millions of people throughout history have committed themselves to this man named Jesus Christ, who is Savior and King. That multiple civilizations in Western and in the East have been founded and built upon the doctrines of the Christian faith. That people as far away as Middle Tennessee 
are sitting on a Sunday morning intently listening about a little baby born in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. Don't despise the day of small things. You know, C.H. Spurgeon walked into that chapel, Methodist chapel as it was on a snowy Sunday morning. Apparently no one showed up but a deacon. Even the pastor couldn't make it uh, to the church that morning. But the the deacon, always uh, prepared to give a defense for the faith that was in him, stood up to give uh, a message. And that morning he only had Spurgeon and maybe one or two other people there, but apparently he spoke for a long time. Nevertheless, he gave all of the food out to the few of the sheep that were there. And it was that morning that C.H. Spurgeon would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and would become the greatest evangelist during the Victorian period of which Charles Dickens himself, Dickens of a Christmas morning here at downtown Franklin, um, would have known that very world that Spurgeon preached in, today called the Prince of Preachers, the one who stood aghast at the wonder of Christmas. Don't despise the day of small things. I want you to see secondly, however, the king's ironic reign. And indeed it is ironic. The word ironic means atypical or paradoxical, not as you would uh, expect it. And of course, with a, a king that arrives like he arrives in a manger, in a faraway place, in desperate circumstances, you might imagine that this king is going to have an unusual reign. And this king indeed does. Six qualifiers are actually given of who he is, descriptors of the kind of spirit that this king um, will possess. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, the language of Isaiah here is is lifted up. It's in a poetic and, and a perilistic form. He's actually showing us that Um, The superlative of all of these characteristics are found within this king. He is a king, first of all, who knows the right thing to do. He is full of wisdom and understanding. What an incredible leader it is. It's nice to have leaders who know what to do, right? This leader knows exactly what to do. He knows everything that there is to do. And that's one of the hardest things about leading. Because when you're leading, you, you, don't, you can't control everything. And you, don't, you see all the variables. And, and you, you don't know how things are going to play out. And, and there's knowledge that you wished you had that you don't have. And you recognize you get to the end of your ability. Well, not this king. He possesses all wisdom and all understanding. But then notice, he has all counsel and all might. Well, that means he's all powerful. You know, very often we know what to do, but we don't have the power to do what it is that we know that we ought to do, right? That's very often the case, not the case with this king. He, he doesn't deal with the dilemma in life that, that we deal with. You, you know the dilemma that we deal with in, in life. When you're, when you're young, you don't know what to do, but you have all of the strength and energy. And then when you're old, you know what to do, but you don't have any strength. You don't have any You don't have any energy. That's the dilemma that we're in. Uh, This particular king is not in that dilemma. The combination of these two things are part and parcel to his rule. Now, so far, he sounds like a, well, he sounds like an amazing ruler, a man among men. This, this, This guy is 10 foot tall and bulletproof, which is why the third qualification, which some of the 
uh, commentators recognize a kind of ascending order, kind of a culmination here in the final couplet that's given to us, is so ironic, it's so strange, that he's a spirit of counsel and might, he has a spirit of wisdom and understanding, but notice now he has a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, would you have added that? I mean, Tony mentioned it a second ago on our way into confession. What is this fear of the Lord? Well, I think for many of us, it's a very difficult phrase to wrap our heads and our hearts around. And yet, it's used all of the time in the Scripture, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the writer of Proverbs tells us, even from the lips of Solomon. It's a difficult concept to get across, and we're, we're told now this Jesus, this Jesse's shoot, uh, this one who's the next king, the great king, who's going to bring peace, an incredible kingdom given to us here in verses 6 through 9, this one comes in knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We might say to ourselves, why would this guy be afraid of anything? <laughs> he knows everything. He's got all the power. Why would he, why would he have the fear of the Lord? Why don't people be fear of him? You're afraid of him. Why is it phrased that way? And why isn't this puzzling? It's paired with knowledge. It's paired with knowledge. I mean, haven't we already covered that? He mentioned wisdom and understanding, and knowledge just kind of in that mix. That belies that we think we're thinking like post Enlightenment 21st century North Americans, and not like Hebrews here in this text. You see, knowledge in the Hebrew Old Testament is a is a personal thing. It's a relational thing. It's an, it's an embodied thing. We think of knowledge as facts. We think of it as getting the details, analytical knowledge, content, information. That's what knowledge is. We live in the spirit of an age that's given over to information. And, and this, is a, this is a great thing. That's what we think this knowledge means. That's not what the Hebrews thought. For the Hebrews, knowledge was irrevocably relational. It was, it was personal and, and intimate. It, it, meant to, it meant to know something with, with one's whole self. So, so for instance, in, in Genesis chapter 4, when we read, same word here in Isaiah, that Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. This does not mean that, that, that Adam has studied intellectual knowledge of, of Eve. He knows Eve like nobody else knows Eve. He is personally and intimately acquainted with Eve to such degree that he's given himself over to the knowledge of Eve. This kind of knowledge is what's in view, is that this, this one who has come as the shoot of Jesse has knowledge of the Lord. He has intimate and personal acquaintance with the Lord. He is himself God, united from all eternity past as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has complete and total knowledge intimately and relationally with the Lord. And so his response to the Lord is fear. Interesting. We might half expect to see love here. Or joy, or Hope or something like that, but what we, we have here is, is fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, Tony gave us a very helpful uh, definition earlier, but I want you just to think in, in two, kind of in two words here. I want you to think in the term allegiance, and I want you to think in the terms, uh, term alignment. Um, to, to, be, to be 
fearing of the Lord is to have a loving allegiance to the Lord. One in which you know Him and His worthiness, His beauty, His glory, that it is of your nature now to give yourself over to submitting to the desires of the Lord. Because He alone is worthy of being followed. That's the spirit of this shoot that comes forth from Jesse. He has allegiance to the Lord. It's not a under my thumb. It's not an iron fist of suppression. Notice verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Do you notice the emphasis here in the text? He's not just qualified by the fear of the Lord. He takes joy and delight in the fear of the Lord. It's something that he is lovingly compelled and captivated by. Just when you have been mesmerized by something beautiful or glorious or, 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 or marvelous in the world, or you see someone who has an incredible skill that you want to have the skill that they have, you know, you watch uh, that person play the guitar. You watch that person throw the football. Uh, you, you watch that person um, paint on the canvas with watercolors. And you, you say to yourself, that is glorious. I submit myself to your tutelage. Show, show me, how can I be under you and aligned with you? Your purposes, designs, and gifts and abilities so that I am shaped towards the ends for which you are guided and directed. You see, that's what's going on here. That's the fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord, this knowing of the Lord and this fearing of the Lord is what we see in the life of Jesus from the very beginning of his days. Do you remember the one time we get a glimpse into Jesus' life as a little boy at the age of 12? He's in the temple. It's the feast of Passover. His parents leave. They think he's in the caravan. And they get, a, they get a day away from Jerusalem heading back to Nazareth. And they realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. And they turn around and they go back to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, what do they find? Well, they find that there is Jesus in the temple. And he's asking questions of the religious leaders. And he's mesmerizing them by his own answers and questions and responses to them. And Mary shows up and, and quite honest, she's, she's frustrated. She's offended. You catch it in sort of the content and tone of the passage. She says to, to Jesus after they find him, why have you treated us so? And then she says... Your father and I, very interesting description. Your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. And you know his response? Why are you searching for me? How do you not know that I wouldn't be about my father's business? I'm in submission to him. I'm under his allegiance. I follow his commands. What we see in that earliest glimpse of Jesus' life is what we see through the course of his life leading up to the culmination of his mission on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what do we see? But Jesus submitting himself in the fear of the Lord 
in allegiance to the Lord and in alignment with the purposes of the Lord. He is asking that the cup of God's wrath would be removed from him. That's what he desires as a human person with human sensibilities and and physical desires. He sees the suffering that awaits him on the cross and he recoils against it. He does not want to drink the cup of God's wrath. He knows what's coming. And yet he says in that garden... Not my will, but thy will be done. I fear you, O Lord, against what I feel, against even what humanly I desire in the moment. Your glory is what I am pursuing. I'm aligned with your mission. I'm giving total and complete loving allegiance to you for the joy that's set before me I endure the cross. You see, that's what he's saying. The irony of this king's reign is that he rules in submission to the will of his father. Now, why is that so important? Because because we, we don't live in submission to the will of our father. You see, that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve, Eve first of all being tempted by the serpent... She ultimately obeys the serpent because she fails to fear the Lord. To fear the words of, the, of God. You will surely die. She assesses things differently than God does. Oh, the food, it looks good to eat. It's going to make me wise. She does her own judgment. You know what she does? She gives her allegiance to the serpent. She aligns with the purposes of the serpent. And all of human history, as Adam follows suit, falls in Adam. Each of us seeking out many devices, being submitted to the fear of so many things, but not the fear of the Lord. Jesus must come to complete that. He must come to complete the mission that we failed to complete, of which we fell short of, which is why ultimately he goes all the way to the cross. The rise of his power and his authority, the irony, is that the rise and the power of his authority comes through his execution on the cross. His ascension comes and his resurrection comes through the execution that happens on the cross. It's it's that which we see as the irony of this king's reign. Now, here's why this is important. By knowing that he submits himself to the Lord, here's what we can be sure of, that this king is good. You know how important that is? Let, 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 me, let me paint the picture if we didn't get that. If we didn't know that he was submitted in the fear of the Lord, meaning that he was given over to goodness. Let's just take into consideration that he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful, and he is evil. Horror of horrors. You know, by any estimation, Adolf Hitler was a genius. His problem wasn't in his intellectual capacities. When he came into power in in Nazi Germany and he executed his intellectual genius towards malevolent ends, we get things like World War II and the Holocaust. One of the scariest things that we ever see in life is genius patterned to power, tethered together. 
One of the most hopeful things that this passage grants to us is genius tethered to power, tethered to goodness. Righteousness is a belt around his waist. Faithfulness is of which he girds up his loins. When he sees the poor and the meek who are the subjects of injustice, he labors as an advocate for their cause and he judges them with equity. When the wicked come and suppress them, his word comes down like a sword from his mouth and he humbles and cuts down all of the wicked. He's a man who will not be persuaded by the things he hears and he sees. That's what he says here. Meaning that a man can't get in his ear and go, turn him. He takes no counsel from men. He judges completely and wholly with righteousness. No one will look at his judgments at the end of time, both those in whom he has saved and those in whom he has condemned. And no one will be able to say, he did not do all things right. He'll be utterly righteous. He is never capricious. He is full of understanding and wisdom. He is full of power and might. He is full of goodness. He will treat everything and bring everything to perfect rights and justice. You see, that's this glimpse of the kingdom he's come to build there in verses 6 through 9, where we have those very famous words, but a lying laying down with a lamb, with, with goats being next to leopards and children playing with cobras as if they're playthings and sticks that kids might pick up in the yard. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we, we don't have that in the world currently. Predators and prey still very much exist. Uh, violence and injustice and subversive uh, behavior is very much still at the fore. And, and just like the prophets, isn't it just like the prophets to start talking about some time period and then jump a, you know, thousands of years in the future without telling you? Right? That's just what they do. I love the way that my Old Testament prophetic um, professor, and he was a prophetic professor, um, would say about looking at the prophets, it's like looking at mountains and mountain ranges all connected. And as the prophets would receive the vision and the revelation from the Lord, they would see the foreground mountain. Oh, that's the coming of Jesus. But, but collapsed upon the foreground of that mountain was another whole range that was the second coming. But for the receiver of the revelation, it was like they were one bolt of cloth. It's almost as if they experienced time in their revelation like God does. As if the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ are right on top of each other. But when you get to that first mountain and then you look to the second mountain beyond it, you know what you always see? There's a long valley and you're always surprised by how far apart they are. That's what's happening here in the pages of Scripture. That in a very real sense, the second coming is now in view that this one who has come, who will be all-knowing and all-powerful and execute total justice. He has come and he has done that in servanthood. He's done that with a sense of irony, with a sense of uh, behind the closed doors, in a, in a mysterious and shadowy way. But there will come a time in which, thirdly, his return will be unavoidable. All will be known. See, that's what he actually says to us in verse 10. Isaiah says, in that day, now here's just, listen, no extra charge for this. When you hear the prophets say, in that day, they're always talking about the second coming. Go look at Joel. 
Go look at Amos. Go look at Malachi. In verse 10, he's, he's jumping now to the second coming. In that day, here's what we will see. The root of Jesse shall stand as what? A signal to the people. Does that sound like a shoot? No. Like growth has happened. Like this kingdom has gotten massive and this king and his influence have become cosmic in dimension. He is now a signal to the people of Israel, to the nations. To the nations. He is an unavoidable king now. His return is unavoidable. No one will be able to say, we didn't see him. We didn't see him. We missed it. Now what's fascinating about this vision of the second coming is it's tied to this beautiful vision of peace that's going to unfold for all of us in the new heaven to the new earth upon Christ's return when everything will be at peace. And the fullness of the righteousness that is described here in this text will be realized. Is that notice the language of verse 10. Isaiah is actually giving us a hint of something here. Notice he says, The root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Now wait. I thought we were talking about shoots. Now all of a sudden in verse 10, we're talking about the root of Jesse shall stand. We were talking about something that came from Jesse, the father of King David, the great royal king of the people of Israel. Now Isaiah is saying that the power that's going to be a signal to all of the nations at the end of time doesn't just come forth from Jesse. Jesse comes forth from this power. He exists before Jesse. This king is at the very origin of all of human history. Isaiah now is taking us in and under the soil of redemptive history. And he's saying, this one doesn't just come forth from the loins of Jesse. Jesse doesn't have loins without the origin of the root of Jesse, which this king is. Because this king was the one who spoke all of creation into being. How could we ever anticipate that the world is going to be made right with a lion laying down with a lamb, with a child putting their hand over an adder's den to see a bear and an ox and their young feed and graze together on the slopes of Middle Tennessee hills? How would we ever anticipate that the kingdom of the animals would exist with such peace that nature would be at such rest and shalom that such an idyllic, might I say, Edenic picture would ever again show up in human history apart from the one who planted that garden in the first place. Do you see, Isaiah is telling us that the one that came forth from Jesse is the one who actually brought everything to forth. And the creation of the world, having come from him, the redemption and the reconciliation of the world, he is the only one that's fit to bring it to about. He alone is its savior. 
Now, here's what's remarkable is that he has called us into that work. He is going to do it. He promises that. He's going to come back and he's going to complete it. But it's not as if you and I are sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting for it to happen. When he was ascending, just before he was ascending into the heavenly places, he spoke a few words to his disciples that are still relevant for you and I today. He tells us to go into all of the world, starting in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, to all of the nations. And he tells us to be sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this king has come, the divine one made in human flesh, this infinite one who's become an infant, this eternal one who's willing to die, the one who is perfect taking on the charge of sin, the one who faces our greatest enemy, succumbs to it and defeats it in the resurrection, the one who is under the thumb of Herod becomes the ruling force at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. He tells us to go out and to declare these things because what? All authority has been given to him in heaven. Therefore, let us baptize one another and teach one another all the things that the Lord has commanded. What is he doing here? What's he, what's he saying? He's saying the way that the shalom and the peace of the kingdom that is coming according to Isaiah is moved forward in our own age is when you open up your lips to declare his glorious grace. You're a part of the answer of the unfolding and the fulfilling in this generation of the coming kingdom of perfect shalom. That the glimpses of your efforts in this life will be glimpses of the pushing back of the curse and the increasing glory and grace of Jesus Christ known in our time and age. He calls you into that work. And you say to yourself, but Nate, I don't have the power to do that. Oh, he knows. Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Oh, Nate, I'm not good at talking. You're just the kind of people he uses. People like Moses, who would lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. People like Hannah, who would give birth to the leader, who would lead the people of Israel and anoint that first king. People like Ruth and Esther. Men like Elijah and Elisha, whom were described, had souls just like us. Or men made just like us. Don't despise the day of small things. That's what Isaiah is saying. Don't let your inadequacies be an excuse. In God's economy, they're an asset. He is pleased to use the foolishness of this world and of you and me to show forth his wisdom. He is pleased to use your weakness. To show forth his strength. Like the preacher who couldn't make it that day. In that little Methodist chapel. And the deacon who was probably shaken in his boots. Called to deliver a message. That would save C.H. Spurgeon. Behind the greatest movements of men and nations and redemption. Throughout history. Are small fidelities. 
of people's names that we do not know, but of whom the kingdom of God will never forget. Don't despise the day of small things. Our God has been known to save the world with a babe in the manger. Father in heaven, would you give us the encouragement? Would you give us the gumption? Would you give us a steely spiritual backbone to go forth and to be those who are sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because we're gifted, but because we trust your commands, that we fear you lovingly, giving our allegiance and alignment to you, believing that you will accomplish your purposes. Some will plant seeds and others will water. It'll be the Lord who gives the growth. Let us be those who share the gospel with such confidence this Christmas that shows that we have truly understood the mission of this season. Our God using the weak things of the world to save it. There's hope for the likes of us. For not many of us were wise. Not many of us were rich or powerful. But we know the one who is. And that makes all the difference in the world. Father, hear this prayer now and meet us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.